MP, Christmas is almost here. Brado, doesn't that mean the world's about to end? Oh, don't be silly, Marcus. But what is about to end is the two-for-one tickets to the Wellness Base Camp. Jeepers, Brado. Two-for-one tickets to the Wellness Base Camp close this Friday, December 15. Book your tickets now to go in the draw to win some incredible prizes. That's right, Brado. We have three copies of Joe and Fuad's life-changing food to give away and up for a chat, Kim Morrison is giving one lucky Base Camp attendee the signature 28 diffuser with not one, not two, but three synergy blends, including festive spirit. That is valued at almost 200 bucks. All you need to do is book your tickets to the Wellness Base Camp by Friday, December 15 to go in the draw. Give yourself the best Christmas present ever. And win a prize. Two for one tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 150 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Naisha Winters to discuss the metabolic approach to cancer. You will learn how to integrate deep nutrition and the keto diet, plus the essential non-toxic bio-individualized therapies that are required to create an optimal terrain. An optimal terrain is not just for cancer treatment, but what we all need to do to achieve optimal health. Let's welcome Naisha to the show. Thanks. This is great to be here. Really looking forward to talking about um, this particular topic today, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them more about your background and what you're up to these days. Fantastic. My name is Nish Winters and I'm a naturopathic oncologist. Um, now just consulting in Durango, Colorado in the US. Um, I, I had been in private practice in sort of a brick and mortar environment for many, many years. In fact, um, the work I do today is focused entirely in oncology, but my life started out with as a general family practitioner and for many years even focused in endocrinology because there were no endocrinologists in my small part um, neck of the woods, if you will. So I really like it all, and I believe that's what's helped me be a good um, cancer care coach, if you will, because it's not a single cause, single treatment kind of process. It includes our entire body and being. So I think having years and years of a good uh, family practice and a lot of focus in immunology and endocrinology has really set the tone for me really focusing um, a lot in cancer in these last several years. Yeah, fascinating area and looking forward to diving in more. So I know you've written the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. So I'd love for you to share with us about this book and what it means when you mention the, or when you speak of that metabolic approach. 
Fantastic. Well, my co-author, Jess Higgins-Kelly, and I put this book together out of basically a beg and plead process Mm. from our clients over the years. Um, My husband and I started to um, put together women in cancer retreats back in 2005. And it was just the two of us sort of taking women and taking them on these immersion excursions where we would explore people's terrain, which I'll come into a little bit more here in a moment, and basically help them live the life of a really good uh, quality diet and lifestyle over several days to a week long. And we'd have pre and post labs so that they could see and experience the difference in a very sub or objective way. Mm. Of course, they were feeling subjectively better by the end of that time. And over time and hundreds and hundreds of people who went through these immersion programs with us, um, Jess started joining me in 2011 in teaching. We started bringing on more providers and practitioners and she started really focusing on the nutrition side of it as a therapist in, um, you know, a, a nutritional therapist well above and beyond just an RD nutritionist. So she was actually helping people use food as their medicine. So she was a great addition to um, the program and has just such a great way of seeing um, food and being a foodie and putting together recipes. So she just brought a whole new fresh energy and voice. And it was from each of those gatherings we did that people started requesting the recipes and what we did. And started asking for a cookbook. And also the information we taught over these immersion weekends, people said there's so much coming at us. I mean, my patients have said that I feed them uh, enough, like sort of like drinking water from a fire hydrant sort of concept of all of the information I'm downloading for them. So it was really nice to put it in one place. So that being said, this book is, is a collection of 25 plus years of my personal experience of just seeing the sort of main patterns that contribute to ill health, no matter what the diagnosis. The, the book focuses on cancer, but really you could put osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's into that title. It's, it's really written for the masses on how best to look at our body as a whole organism and how to test, assess, and address the personal individual imbalances that are within each of us to help cultivate the best health possible and prevent disease. Yeah, amazing. And I'm sure, you know, you've seen a lot more recently with this conversation, but also that, you know, there are a lot of um, different books and approaches, especially when it does come to cancer treatment. So what, what makes your approach different? And I do want to hear about the terrain that you mentioned. So that's perhaps part of it. Well, I think what makes me the most different from a lot of my colleagues is first of all, I'm not a I'm not a very black and white person. I don't find that there is one way <clears throat> to treat any one person or one condition. And so, you know, my my clients and my colleagues have sort of um the feedback I've gotten from them over the years is that I'm, I'm really good at collecting people's stories and seeing their internal patterns. And so what I mean by that is oftentimes when we're diagnosed with anything, okay, in this situation, we're talking about cancer, but in general, when we get diagnosed with something, we kind of go into funnel vision, right? We start to focus on the disease and the symptoms of that disease and how to treat those symptoms. And yet what happens is oftentimes those treatments cause 
other diseases or other symptoms, um, or we ignore some of the big drivers of those disease processes. So specific with this book and my process that I've learned for myself over the last 25 years, um, it's probably important, I'll come to that story in a bit, but um, I'm a, I call myself a cancer thriver, not a cancer mm -hmm. survivor. Um, 26 years out now from a terminal diagnosis myself, so I've had to be my own guinea pig in this process. <laughs> and luckily had thousands of patients who uh, came along for the ride as well. But I'm interested in seeing much more than the tumor or the tumor cell which is typically where the oncology world focuses. We're still focusing on cancer as a thing. And sometimes it's like a foreign invader. We somehow you know, think we go to bed one night without cancer and wake up the next morning with it. And yet it's a dynamic, ongoing, chronic process that um, takes roots years and years before we ever see it being loud enough to catch our attention. Yeah, I, I can imagine. It's very complex. Yeah, yeah. Complex and, and weirdly um, simple at the same time in that mm. we can learn our patterns. You know, we can go, oh, okay, these, these are the 10 possible patterns. And hey, these three are my primary. These are my priorities. This is where I should focus. And so it, it seems like it's very complex, but most of us still have a, like a, anywhere from one to three really critical players within our own chemistry that we could focus on and make a difference. Right. Excellent. So let's dive into those 10 elements and how they relate to the, to the cancer process. Right. And then again, I want to reiterate that it goes beyond, of course, the cancer process, but of cancer is where we'll, you know, kind of thinking of the ultimate um, imbalance, if you will, is when the body gets to the cancering process. And I use that word as a verb purposefully because it is just that because we all, you know, Steph, as you know, or maybe you know, we all have cancer cells all of the time. And um, so why is it that we don't all have cancer at the same time or all of the time? And, and that's what brought me to learning these particular patterns. And when I think about it, think of ourselves as sort of a big bucket and that bucket of us is our overall mitochondrial metabolic functioning, how our cells are making new energy and taking out the garbage. Very simple, okay? And so I think of the biggest contributor to that bucket as being our epigenetics. And by epigenetics, I mean this is what has been passed down to us from generations before us, from our grandparents or our great-grandparents and even our great great-grandparents. So for example, in my part of the woods, um, folks who lived through the Great Depression in the, you know, the 1920s, their experience impacted their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. It turned on certain mechanisms in their chemistry to cause certain disease processes. So we have those things that have been handed down to us but the nice thing about the epigenetics is that we have the ability to change how they express. So we might not be able, you know, we might be born with this blueprint, but we can definitely rearrange the furniture and maybe redecorate the walls. Okay? Yeah. So that's a big player that drops into our big bucket. Another piece that drops into the bucket is our microbiome. And if you're into the food world, you know, like you are, Steph, and myself, you know that what you put into that tube is feeding or starving or making well or making ill different um, critters that line our, 
our gut. Okay. And so um, the microbiome used to be kind of ignored in the last several decades. And as a naturopathic doctor, we have believed that the gut is sort of the center of health. And um, it's only been in the last few years that the Western sciences are really catching up and saying, wow, you know, this is actually a big deal. Um, we know that our immune system is really rooted in our GI function. We even now understand depression to be a matter of our microbiome balance and uh, inflammatory processes. So the gut, the way our little microbes are lined up in our gut play a big role in what goes into that bucket. And then we have things like our emotional body. A lot of people put this at the bottom of the rungs of the ladder yet it's probably one of the most important ones to deal with. We even have a field of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology, which means basically our thoughts impact our immune system and our endocrine hormones. And so really, we are what we think as well as we are what we eat. So that, of course, contributes to the bucket. Um, and then we've got like a few other things that go in there, like our hormonal balance, our blood sugar balance, what toxicants we're exposed to on a daily basis, our immune system, the inflammation process, even down to our circulation, and specifically in the world of cancer, a concept known as angiogenesis, which is the building of new blood vessels that feed tumors or tumor processes. Um, and then, of course, stress. Oh, you can't ignore that puppy. Um, you know, biorhythms fit into that as well. So being out of rhythm is stressful to our biochemistry. So we think of psychological stress, but it's also quite stressful to stand in front of a blue screen after sunset. You know, our mitochondria get stressed by that. Um, and I think that covers kind of the, the 10 items that fill up that bucket any, at any given time. And the cool thing is we have the ability to change the composition of that bucket. Yeah, I love that. And I can now see more as to how you refer it to being important for, you know, essentially health and wellness in general. They're all pivotal in terms of those, those pillars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so I wanted to actually jump backwards if you would, um, as you briefly touched on, you've got your own personal experience with cancer. Um, have you got some comments on how things have changed as to the treatment and perhaps the understanding and maybe even how your approach is being received these days? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question because as weird as it sounds, the longer I've been alive, the longer I've outlived my uh, expected expiration date, mm. the bigger the changes. I mean, I never thought, first of all, that I'd survive. Okay. I was given three months to live and, and even said, Hey, we'll throw some chemo in there just for good, you know, good measure, but it's not going to do anything. Mm. So that wasn't exactly inspirational in 1991. Okay. It's not like, oh, I'm going to run out and throw these chemicals in my body on my way out the door. Um, and so for me, probably being a little bit young and naive, you know, I was 19 at the time and um, I was like that zebra. No one expected to see someone my age that sick. So it was misdiagnosed for a long period of time before it was big enough and loud enough to capture everyone's attention and for them to look in the right places to create the diagnosis. Now, Flash forward 26 years, probably the biggest difference today 
it is our ability to do exactly what you and I are doing right now, Steph, is to be able to communicate with other people on the journey from all over the world. Okay. And there's a place where, I mean, there's even entire support groups online for young people with cancer. Okay. There was a time we were all our own little islands. There was no one else my age um, in my peer group at the time I was diagnosed. And unfortunately today, that's not the case. When I started practicing, the average age of cancer patients I saw was 68. Today it's 48. And in fact, this next week, I have five new clients on the books. There's not a single person um, above the age of 55. And the other three of those of the five that I'm seeing this week are under the age of 40. So that's what I've seen happen as well as my colleagues and as well as the National Institute of Health and um, NCI guidelines and World Health Organization statistics are showing that as well. We used to think of this as a disease of old age, and we can't say that any longer. So that's one of the other big changes is we now understand this is a lot more than a genetic problem and an aging problem. We now understand that probably a lot of the stuff we've been putting in the bucket for the past 50 to 75 years has absolutely directly impacted our outcomes. Okay, so I think those are big differences. And then, you know, we haven't really come that far in our actual, quote unquote, winning the war on cancer. Um, We haven't really changed survival rates. Um, There's a few cancers we've been a bit successful with, some leukemias and lymphomas and testicular cancer with chemotherapy. But otherwise, across the board, in all tumor types, all stages and diagnoses, without um, gender specification or even tumor type, we still see only about a 3% recovery rate with chemotherapy. And if you add um, radiation to that, that can go up to 12%. And you add surgery to that, you can see 25%. But those are still not really good statistics, and they haven't changed much in the past 50, 60 years. Wow. Have you got some thoughts as to what the barriers have been there? I mean, I agree with you that there's obviously a a lot of factors that we're exposed to and and doing as to the significant increase in prevalence. But um, what what do you think is happening with the, the solution or changing the treatment model? Such a good question because I think, I mean, first of all, what's exciting to me is just last Oh, golly, not this past weekend, but last weekend at um, in Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland in the U.S., there was a wonderful conference that brought in people from all over the world. In fact, a few uh, Australians and New Zealanders were there um, as well, so it was fun to see that. But this conference was called the Truth, or excuse me, Tripping Over the Truth Retreat. And the group that gathered are people that are changing the conversation around cancer because the very reason we have not gone gotten very far, in my opinion, and the opinion of many, many other clinicians and researchers around the world, is that we have been looking at cancer as a somatic theory, DNA-damaged genetic disease for about 75 years, right? And so that's where we put all of our energy, yet in reality, less than, you know, less than 10% and probably closer to 5% of all cancers are truly genetic. Okay. So the rest, that 90 to 95% is actually um, more about 
our terrain, which like I said, what goes into that bucket. So much more around our diet and our lifestyle. So where the conversation is changing is we're not necessarily, although there's some people saying, let's even throw the gene theory out the window altogether. I don't think we have to do that. But I definitely think we need to be bringing a few more players to the table. And those critical players, which is the base of Jess and I's book, is this concept of cancer as a metabolic mitochondrial disease. And that where we've looked at the gene as being the problem for these last 75 years, we actually need to back it up another notch to what's going on at the mitochondrial level. And the mitochondria are our little energy factories within the cells of our body. And what we are now finding is that if our mitochondria are healthy, we don't get the genetic hiccups. We don't get the genetic expression. Okay. If our mitochondria are unhealthy, then we can get, of course, genetic hiccups, but also epigenetic hiccups and other oncogenes and growth factors that grow out of range. So basically the health and wealth and vitality and number and function of our mitochondria are what are absolutely making a difference of whether you overcome, maintain, or succumb to a cancerous process. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And I think that's a beautiful way to look at it, but obviously, as you say, very different to what's happened for the last seven or so decades. So how have you found navigating this space? I don't know if you can share um, any kind of personal experience with like conventional oncologists or any criticism that you've faced or has it been rather positive? Interesting. I love this because I live in a very small town in Mm. Colorado and I have a really good relationship with a lot of the doctors in Mm. this town I have for many, many years, except for my local oncology team. And it's not that, I mean, I will tell you in complete transparency, there has been moments of it being outright yucky. Okay. There's no other nice way to put it. Um, but in the last few years, it's warmed to a level of tepid. Okay. Okay. There's a neutrality that's there, which did not exist for a very long time. Despite the fact that even one of their oncologists has worked with me directly for her own health issues and has sent patients to me. And despite the fact that most of the nurses, the oncology nurses at that center work with me, send patients to me and have seen the absolute difference in the patients that are doing an integrative approach versus the patients just doing a conventional approach. Um, My local small town oncology team seems to be the least receptive of everyone I'm meeting. Ironically, it's those physicians and those researchers that are part of the big academic research-centric you know, hospitals and um, universities around the country that are actually becoming the biggest advocates of an integrative oncology approach. I never thought I'd see that. But in the last five years, the majority of the positive relationships I've cultivated are with people at MD Anderson, Dana-Farber, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Johns Hopkins, UCSF, UCLA, you know, I mean, you name all the big, big university environments are all really trying to create and cultivate integrative 
um, oncology programs and they're consulting with and advising with people like myself. That is music to my ears. It's wonderful news. And I can imagine it's a big relief for you to see the, the space change over the last few years at least. Totally. So the, um, the subline is called, in, or is, sorry, is written as Integrating Deep Nutrition, the Ketogenic Diet and Non-Toxic Bio-Individualized Therapies. So I wanted to talk to you specifically about the ketogenic diet. Um, We've had Angela Poff on The Real Food Real this year um, and she shared with us some of the sort of more current research around how it's being studied in relation to cancer. I wanted to get your thoughts on the ketogenic diet and what your experience has been. Well, perfect. Well, one of the people that was attending this conference I just spoke about that was co-hosted by Johns Hopkins just last weekend was Dr. Poff. And um, it, it's incredible. She actually did a presentation on some of her work there. Um, but that's you know, when we started looking at the ketogenic diet. Um, I'm, I know from experience that your listeners are a bit savvy with the ketogenic mm-hmm. diet. You've had a variety of speakers around different applications of this above and beyond cancer. Um, but specifically, when we started thinking about it with regards to cancer, we were thinking very basic. We were thinking just starve the cancer of glucose, right? That's where we started with our thought process. And yet, where we have come and where we are going is that we are now understanding that the ketogenic diet impacts all 10 of what is known as the 10 hallmarks of cancer. And these 10 hallmarks of cancer were, has become basically the understood um, drivers of cancer across like all, like from conventional oncology to integrative oncology to alternative oncology across the board. It is sort of since 2011 been sort of taken, I guess, as truth you know, sort of as fact that there are 10 main things that drive cancer. And just I outlined a few. One of them um, of the hallmarks is, of course, sustained proliferation of the cancer cells, um, intensive um, anti-response to anti-growth signals. So the, the cancer cells have stopped communicating with the signals trying to tell it to stop growing. Um, evasion of cell death, uh, limitless replicative potential, sustained angiogenesis, that blood supply we talked about earlier. Of course, an ability to metastasize, an actual reprogramming of the energy, which is where we thought keto only worked on this piece. Avoidance of immune dete- uh, detection and destruction. So our immune system stops responding um, and the cancer cells kind of cloak themselves and hide out. And then a promotion of inflammation that the tumor itself creates and then genome instability and mutation. So those are the 10 hallmarks. And like I said, for a long period of time, we were thinking that the ketogenic diet just worked on that reprogramming of energy metabolism. But now we understand, thanks to people like Adrian Sheck out of Barrows um, and many others, including Dr. Poff and her team, we now understand the ketogenic diet impacts every one of those 10 hallmarks of cancer. We don't have a pharmaceutical, we don't have a surgical intervention, we don't have a radiologic, so a radiation intervention that hits all 10 of those at the same time. In fact, 
most of our treatments might at best hit two to three of those targets at any given time. And so that is so impressive to me that number one, this is like the perfect shotgun approach, right? Number two, what Dr. Poff and her team and many others like her around the world are finding is that this diet acts sort of like a Trojan horse and that it helps weaken the cancer cells so that any other therapies that are kind of riding in on that horse are far more effective at targeting those cancer cells. And so basically it makes all of our treatments, whether it's chemo, radiation, a targeted therapy, a hormone blockade therapy, or even a naturopathic like hyperbaric oxygen or IV vitamin C or mistletoe therapy work much better in a ketogenic state. Yeah, beautiful. That's so exciting that there's so many benefits of obviously what is essentially real food with a modified macronutrient balance. So so exciting and I'm sure there's a lot more research coming out in this area in the very near future. What were the other or were there any of the um, additional treatments that you wanted to touch on in terms of either what you outline in the metabolic approach to cancer or what um, you're seeing works really well in conjunction with something like the ketogenic diet? Perfect. Well, in the last year or two, I've spoken at a few medical conferences, and again, not just to naturopathic or integrative oncologists, but even to uh, clinicians and researchers around the world in very conservative medical environments. So it's not, these conversations aren't limited to kind of the, the outlying woo-woo crowd. Okay. <laughs> But, but I, you know, the last couple of lectures I've done have been kind of focusing on my top five, which now I would kind of add in maybe a few more to that. But ketogenic diet would obviously be kind of the hallmark or the base to hit all 10 of those cancer hallmarks we just talked about, but also it affects all 10 of the terrain 10 that we outlined earlier that we talk about in the book of the 10 patterns I see in patients. It really hits on all of those beautifully. So again, knowing that it's going to enhance any therapy I bring on board, it is something that I will often use short-term um, in certain cancers, long-term in certain cancers, and even pulsing in certain cancers or disease conditions. The other things I love to weave in are things like high-dose IV vitamin C, which also tends to impact many, many of the hallmarks of cancer. Um, Things like cannabinoid medicine. You know, I live in, of course, Colorado in the United States, where it's not only legal here medically, but also legal here recreationally. So there's, you can't walk two feet without falling onto a dispensary. <laughs> um, and you know, I think a lot of people think you drive into Colorado and you just are in sort of a haze of smoke, and it might seem like that on one level. But folks like myself and my husband, who's an avid researcher, and he actually owns a lab testing um, constituents of medical marijuana, including the toxicants that it's being grown under. So people are using a lot of pesticides and herbicides and heavy metals. And, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff that's going into the industry because it's growing so fast. People are 
lazy and greedy. So, you know, he's kind of keeping them in check there. But what we're starting to find with things like cannabinoid medicine is sort of what's very old is new again, and that we're understanding that the cannabinoid aspect, the hemp side of things, the dope, or excuse me, the rope, not dope, as my husband likes to call it, Mm -hmm. is just as effective, um, if not more so, in the realm of autoimmunity, immune modulation, anti-inflammatory, mood stabilizing, pain management, and even tumor drive back. Um, we're just finding that, again, it's hitting a lot of different things in that bucket of the terrain 10, but also on the hallmarks. And that gets exciting to me that you can, I think you'll see a theme here that if I'm choosing a therapy, I want to make sure it's hitting more than one target at any given time. So between mistletoe is another one, which is the oldest and most studied integrative uh, cancer medicine on the planet. There's actually over 7,000 studies, but about 2,500 of them are considered good studies. And in the United States, where we have really rigorous um, reviews, say that the only studies that count are our big you know, RTC studies, there's about 160 of those. So there's a lot of data showing that this, again, is another therapy that's an injectable therapy to impact many targets of the cancer cell, but also to really enhance the quality of life and the well-being of the patient, which is huge. We don't often see therapies in cancer care that make you feel better at the same time of, you know, bolstering your immune system and killing cancer cells. So that's pretty cool. And then a few other emerging therapies that are really finding a nice rhythm with ketogenic diet are things like hyperbaric oxygen. So we're seeing a lovely combination of that in particular with people with uh, brain cancers. Um, And so when the body's in deep ketosis and you also then flood it with, uh, perfuse it with a lot of oxygen in an oxygen chamber, you can really create some major uh, die-off of cancer cells and change the, the blood flow to the tumor in a pretty traumatic way. Dramatic way, I should say. Dramatic, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you say, like really positive for the for the patient. I think the mistletoe cancer treatment is another fascinating area. Um, I haven't heard much about it personally, and I don't work in this space. But I wanted to get your opinion on what the barriers have been there, and maybe at the moment why we're we hearing sort of more about the ketogenic diet and not so much about the mistletoe infusions? Great question. Well, first of all, if you lived in Europe, and especially if you lived in Germany, Switzerland, France, or Austria, you have um, right now 85% of all patients diagnosed with cancer will be put on this therapy at some time during their cancer journey. That's significant, right? If you live in the rest of Europe, that likelihood is about 65%. So when you live away, like if you live in the United States, you live in, you know, the, in Austra- Australia or New Zealand, or even parts of South America or Africa or India, you may not hear about it as much because this therapy is a, is a European mistletoe. And though there are thousands of species of mistletoe all over the planet, the ones that show the highest lectin content tend to be really centered around the black forest region of Europe. Um, and so there's a terra, there's something about the soil and something about, you know, the, 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 the light, I mean, everything, it, you know, it feeds into why those plants have a bit more of an anti-cancer effect than say what grows in my backyard of mistletoe. 
So it's been very European centric. It was, it was learned by Rudolf Steiner and Ida Wegman back in 1917. It's celebrating its hundredth year birthday as an injectable treatment for cancer. So it's not new to the, to the stage by any means. Um, but the other thing you have to remember, Steph, is that just a couple of years ago, like I said, I've been at this for 25, 26 years now, even two, three years ago, I cannot even tell you how many doctors completely denied the um, impact of our immune system on cancer. And so when you looked at a therapy, what, what mistletoe has been most studied about being was an immunomodulating therapy. So it's not until we now are having immune therapies in clinical trials and we're funneling billions of dollar research dollars into new targeted immune therapies that anyone's even starting to talk about the immune system. So the conversation of mistletoe is starting to pick up momentum outside of Europe because we have so many side effects to these pharmaceuticals that we're trying to concoct in a lab. And frankly, we've had really good success, really good response rates with a plant medicine that's been around for a hundred years. And you can't patent that, you know, something that costs you more from a hundred to 300 US dollars a month versus a, a, an immune therapy today. There's one on the market that's half a million US dollars. It's like, come on, <laughs> right? So not a lot of impetus for money there, but we do have a clinical trial that started in the U.S. at Johns Hopkins in February of this year. Um, they presented last weekend at that conference at Hopkins as well, and it's doing well. It's in a state safety trial because in the U.S. they feel like they have to start everything from scratch, even though it's been well studied as a safe um, medication. Um, we hope that it will move into phase two pretty quickly and then on into phase three and out into, you know, the masses. Um, but that's a big step in this country. We know that Brazil and South America in general are really picking up momentum. Right now, it's used as the treatment of choice for um, hepatitis C. It's being used a lot in pediatric oncology in South America. Very safe, very inexpensive, very effective medicine. I've got colleagues in India who've been using it there uh, because it's a relatively low cost compared to so many of the other therapies. Um, I've got a colleague in Russia who's using it in endocrine cancers, endocrine disorders, thyroid dysfunction, thanks to Chernobyl. Huge population dealing with those conditions, and they're injecting it right into the thyroid gland. We've got people using it in veterinary medicine all over the world as well. I'm including a, a colleague who's part of the Keto Pet Sanctuary Project. Um, so we're doing some really cool combinations of seeing this therapy kind of modernized, if you will, and brought on board as a team player with things like ketogenic diet, intravenous vitamin C, conventional targeted therapies. Um, it's even offsetting the side effects of a lot of those new checkpoint inhibitor therapies like Keytruda and um, um, Optivo, which are really big money-making drugs these days in the immune therapy world. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I know you've got some great research um, on some of those more, I guess, they're considered alternative in the, in the space, but I'll definitely pop some research in the show notes for those that want to read a little bit more about that. I, I think you're very diplomatic with the way that you answer that question. <laughs> I, um, I don't think we can ignore the, the influence of big pharma and, as you mentioned, the, the millions of dollars that um, some of the more traditional therapies um, are worth. Yeah, yeah. 
Unfortunately. And I wish it wasn't the case. And, you know, my mm. husband worked for Merck Pharmaceutical for years, and he was actually a cancer drug design in grad school over 25 years ago and or 20 years ago. And he studied at that time a protein that he was part of the first people studying this protein, the RAS, the KRAS protein, which they looked at that protein all those years ago and basically said, oh, no blockbuster drug here, so we're just going to bury this data. Well, it's been unburied, and now we have so much research coming out around KRAS and looking for you know, targeted agents to KRAS protein. And the craziest thing is one of the most impactful ways we can uh, change this uh, target, this oncogene, if you will, is with a ketogenic diet. And so it just, it cracks me up that we are, are recycling old data, old research, old information, and trying to come up with new targeted agents and new drugs that we can market. And yet, frankly, nothing works better than the diet itself. Yeah. Phenomenal. So yeah. fascinating. But thank God we finally got here and, and the improvements yeah. will continue after all these years. Um, I wanted to give you the space to certainly add anything else that you would like to. And then, of course, um, direct our listeners to your online home so they can learn more and, and get in touch if they need. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I um, just want to say that there really is so much more out there and available to you besides what's considered the standard of care. It's not to even say do instead of chemo, radiation, surgery. I look at it as you can enhance those therapies and certainly help your whole body and whole terrain by weaving in some of these things we've discussed tonight. Um, and so that is something really important I want your listeners to, to take home with them, that this isn't an either or. Um, so there's that. Number two, to look outside of your conventional team to find out what resources there are. And Jess and I are very proud to say that our book is a really good resource for that. And there's a lot of other ones coming out on the market. We've got some colleagues, you know, we know Miriam Kalamian just brought out her fantastic book, Keto for Cancer, because historically there was a lot of great information on keto out there, but it wasn't cancer centric. And they do need some different things than folks just using it for weight loss or optimization of human performance. So her book is fantastic. And then my um, colleagues, Paul Anderson and Mark Stengel, both naturopathic physicians and oncology specialists, have a book coming out in the next year on a lot of these very specific integrative therapies. So it's going to be fun for people to learn much more about IV vitamin C and artesanate and mistletoe and other things more specific on the actual treatments outside of chemo and radiation. So that's coming down the pipeline. But in the meantime, you can hunt me down on social media. We have a Facebook page that's the same name as our book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Um, Jess also has her own consulting business called Remission Nutrition, which it's just remissionnutrition.com and also her um, Facebook page, Remission Nutrition. And then my personal consulting specific for helping you test, assess, and address your overall terrain and take a look what's inside that bucket and help you change its, uh, <laughs> change what's in there is optimalterrainconsulting.com and also a Facebook page under that same name and a LinkedIn and Instagram page under that name. So we're trying to get ourselves out there to just be um, beacons of hope and information and inspiration to folks all over the world. Amazing. I just love what you're doing. And I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that um, I guess have been exposed to something that maybe they didn't know. And, and hopefully they can share that with their loved ones that need to hear this information. So 
keep doing what you're doing and we're so grateful for you to share your knowledge with us here on the show. Great stuff. What an absolute honor to be here. And I hope your listeners continue to eat well. You've got some great ideas and recipes on your site. Um, <laughs> I just love that you're sharing the wisdom of food as medicine. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.